Michael Servita still remains largely an unknown figure to the general public, though we owe him to a large extent formation of, Amer- of modern society. He combined what was best in the Renaissance and in the movement of the Reformation. He was a lonely scholar, philosopher, theologian, and scientist. In the intellectual sphere, Servetus initiated a critical study of the entire system of assertions which prevailed in his century and demanded its radical and rational reevaluation. His genius contributed to several branches of human knowledge. His intellectual outlook combined with the circumstances of his martyrdom defined his fate as to set in motion a process of intellectual ferment and social moral change. The intellectual ferment led to the development of rationalism as a method of investigation. The moral demands led to a switch in the social paradigm from the ecclesiastical to the humanistic and recovery of freedom and of conscience which existed in the ancient Greco-Roman society. I think we need to turn it down just a little. So writes the president and vice president of the Servetus International Society. The mission of the Servetus International Society, according to their own web page, is to bring together people who are committed to foster the spirit of humanism, tolerance of ideas, and respect for the rights of the individual by preserving and promoting the Michael Servetus heritage as intellectual giant, model of integrity, and standard bearer in the struggle for freedom of conscience. Although we do not see Servetus as a hero, we do agree with the above statements that Servetus' rationalistic and humanistic worldview has had an extensive effect on modern Western civilization, although a detrimental one. Who was Michael Servetus? He was born Miguel Servito in Navarre, Spain, in either 1509 or 1511. He died October the 27th, 1553, in Champel, Switzerland, just outside Geneva. In his life, he came into contact with the key players of the Protestant Reformation, both its friends and its enemies. In 1530, his patron was the confessor of Emperor Charles V. He witnessed the coronation of Charles. He visited Augsburg, Germany, and probably saw Martin Luther. The religious adoration of the Pope turned him against the papacy. He visited John Ocolampadius at Basel, Switzerland, and Martin Bucer in Strasbourg, Germany, and he met a young John Calvin in France in 1536. He studied medicine, mathematics, geometry, astrology, theology, and Hebrew. He practiced medicine for a time. He gained a medical degree in the medical school at Montpellier, France, He was the personal physician to Pierre Palmier, Archbishop in Vienna, for 12 years. His first book, De Trinitatis Erebus, Seven Errors About the Trinity, which he published in 1531, drew much attention. In it, he repeated the Jewish criticisms of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity as polytheistic. He also wrote Restitution of Christianity in 1553. To him, the doctrine of the Trinity in the Nicene Creed and the Christology of the Council of Chalcedon were the chief sources of the corruption of Christianity. In 1545, he began an exasperating correspondence with Calvin, 
whose institutes he contemptuously criticized. Another of his books was published under a pseudonym. It was his edition of a Latin Bible of six volumes entitled Pognenus Polygot Bible, in which he stripped the Old Testament of all prophecies presaging the arrival and message of Jesus and described contemporary political meanings throughout. Using rabbinical sources, he disputed Christian interpretations from Genesis onward. Outwardly, he was a practicing Roman Catholic, but privately he pursued his theological speculations, which were contradictory both to Roman Catholic theology and to Reformed doctrine. He also corresponded with William Farrell and Pierre Verret. In Lyon, France, Servetus was arrested on April the 4th, 1553, for the heretical content of his publications. He escaped from prison on April the 4th and headed back to Spain to avoid arrest again. For the next four months, he could not be found. He said that he never left France. Calvin thought he was wandering in northern Italy. On Saturday, August the 12th, 1553, he rode to a small village outside Geneva. He sold his horse and walked to Geneva where he stopped at an inn called the Rose and asked for a boat to take him toward Zurich on his way to Naples. Because the boat could not be had until the next day, he attended the afternoon service in the church in Geneva where he was recognized and immediately arrested. The legal process against him lasted from August the 14th to October 26th. The sentence of guilty was passed and carried out the next day, October 27th, 1553. He was publicly executed for being found guilty of a capital crime in the 19th and 20th centuries at least four monuments and statues have been erected to honor him. The necessity of understanding the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon formula in order to understand Servetus. To understand Servetus, one must understand those two great creeds which he detested and attacked. These two documents were formulated in the early centuries of the church and have remained as the test of orthodoxy until today. So then the object of Servetus' assault was not merely John Calvin, but the orthodoxy of the entire Christian church. Here's the statement in the Nicene Creed, 325 A.D., that he detested. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, begin, a being of one substance with the Father. And here's the formula of Chalcedon. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, 
but rather the characteristics of each nature being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. This historical and orthodox view of the Trinity that Calvin and all the reformers held and which Servetus ridiculed is also carefully defined in the Westminster Shorter Catechism written in the middle 1640s. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Servetus condemned as a heretic for his idolatrous anti-Trinitarian teaching and therefore wanted as a capital criminal by Roman Catholics and Protestants alike all over Europe, foolishly came to Geneva. Maybe to challenge John Calvin to a debate in order to discredit him. He was arrested, tried by the civil magistrates and found guilty of teaching idolatrous heresy. On October 26, 1553, as we've said, He was sentenced to death by being burned alive. Calvin, who had sought time and again for changes and exceptions to the council's methods with other ministers, tried to convince the council to execute Servetus by a quicker, less painful death, but the council refused. He was burned at the stake October 27, 1553. Somebody asked me one time, they said, why do you like John Calvin when he was always burning Baptists at the stake? He never burned anybody at the stake. He never was for burning anybody at the, at the stake. But you see how rumors spread. The danger of, why was Servetus' anti-Trinitarianism so dangerous? In a chapter on the, Council of Cal, uh, uh, on the Council of Chalcedon, 451, in his important book, The Foundations of Social Order, R.J. Rushduni gives an insightful answer. Chalcedon established the Christian foundation of Western culture and made possible the development of liberty. It did so by keeping the distinction clear between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man, a gulf unbridgeable by nature and bridged only by grace. The problem that is dealt with in its description of the Lord Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, one divine and the other human, without confusion, change, division, or separation is, who is man's savior, God or man, Christ or the state? If the two natures of Christ are confused, the human deified and the divine humanized, the door would be open to the belief that man and the state were divine and therefore ultimate. If the human nature of Christ is denied, his role as man's incarnate savior would be denied, and again man's savior would be the state. If Christ's deity is denied, then his saving power would be nullified. This Chalcedon formula has remained as the touchstone of orthodoxy. Its influence on theology has been decisive. It is, for example, impossible to understand John Calvin apart from his fidelity to Chalcedon. Rush Dooney. Western culture has been largely a product of Chalcedon, and the continuing crises in both church and state reflect their departures from or rebellions against Chalcedon. 
Chalcedon, first of all, separated Christian faith sharply from the Greek and pagan concepts of nature and being. It made clear that Christianity and all other religions and philosophies could not be brought together. The natural does not ascend to the divine or to the supernatural. The bridge is gulfed only by revelation and by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Salvation, therefore, is not of man, nor by means of man's politics, or by any other effort of man. Any theology which weakens the definition of Chalcedon weakens the primacy of the triune God over history. And any theology which denies Chalcedon must of necessity affirm history as the primary area of determination. Chalcedon made possible Western liberty. It is possible to think of true liberty as a product of Christian faith because antiquity saw, to the contrary, the city-state or the imperial state as a religious entity, a visible manifestation of the divine order. In the Christian view, man's life is not comprehended by the state. It's comprehended only by the triune God. Man's unity is only truly realizable in God and his kingdom. Man's individuality is again only realizable and in and through God. The source of Christian liberty is Trinitarianism with its logical concomitant. Western liberty began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. The state then, according to scripture, was made the ministry of justice. But wherever Christ ceases to be man's savior, their liberty perishes as the state again asserts its messianic claims. Man is in trouble, and history is the record of his attempt to find salvation. Man needs a savior, and the question is simply one of choice, Christ or the state. No man can choose the one without denying the other, and all attempts at compromise are a delusion. So then, what makes Servetus' rationalistic, humanistic, and anti-Trinitarian worldview so dangerous? If given national credence, it creates a tyrannical order. Without liberty, justice, unity, individual significance, salvation, or God. Because Calvin's view does not prevail today, Servetus' view has produced the American culture in which we live. His teachings were and are so dangerous because they strike at the very foundation of Western culture. In the trial, this is important, in the trial and conviction of Servetus, Calvin could not determine a single detail. And yet he continues to be blamed for Servetus' burning. Calvin was not a civil magistrate and was not included in the civil process that led to Servetus' conviction and sentencing. Calvin may not have been a citizen of Geneva at this point. In fact, he pled with the civil magistrate not to burn Servetus at the stake. However, Calvin, along with the entirety of Christendom in the 16th century, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant alike, believed that the propagation of idolatrous heresy was a capital crime, basing their views on Leviticus 24, 16 and Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 11. Any discussion of the death of Servetus must take into consideration the following facts. One, Servetus was not an ordinary heretic. He was audaciously pantheistic and outraged the doctrine of all the great Christian communions by saying that God in three persons was a Cerberus, a monster with three heads. 
Two, he'd already been condemned to death by the Roman Catholic doctors at Vienne. Three, the matter was adjudicated, not by Calvin, but by the magistrates of Geneva. And if, he, if it be objected that his opinion must have influenced their decision, it must be remembered that the councils of the other reformed cantons of Switzerland unanimously approved of the sentence. And fourth, it was of supreme importance that the Reformation should clearly separate its cause from that of an infidel like Servetus. The Roman Catholic Church, which nowadays accuses Calvin of having participated in his condemnation, would in the 16th century have much more harshly accused him if he had sought for his acquittal. So then it remains an established fact. Calvin did not burn, drown, or kill anyone. These myths result from a revisionist view of history that has as its goal the discrediting of Christianity. Only ignorance or prejudice maintains these myths, for they are easily dispelled by reading any reputable book on the subject. The presuppositions of the 16th century reformers regarding the function of the civil magistrate. We'll just touch on this first one, because we talked about a little earlier, the teaching of John Calvin. The reformers of the 16th century believed that the purpose of the state is to obey and enforce both tables of the law, all ten commandments. The first table of the Decalogue protected the purity of public worship, the outlawing of idolatry, the uh, sanctity of God's name, the sanctity of the Sabbath. And the second table protected human life, family, property, liberty, and reputation. John Calvin made it unmistakably clear in the last chapter of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that the civil magistrate is to be the guardian of pure worship and the defender of the Christian faith, and that he should govern, that is, the civil magistrate, should govern in the name of Jesus. We'll not uh, read these quotes because we read them and dealt with them in an earlier lecture. Go to the bottom of page 324. We're going to study Beza, have a whole lecture on Beza. I have a picture of him in my den. Theodore Beza, Calvin's close friend and successor in Geneva, published an important book in 1574 entitled On the Right of Civil Magistrate. In it, he asks and answers the question, Do subjects have any remedy against a legitimate sovereign who has become a notorious tyrant? Beza answers, The protection and enforcement of true religion is an inherent obligation of the state. When a king becomes idolatrous and tries to force his subjects into idolatry, the people have a right to rebel through their magistrates if correct worship has been guaranteed by public law. Beza's book influenced the publication in 1579, five years after Beza's book appeared, of Vindiciae Contra Tyrannus, or the Vindic Vindication of Liberty Against Ty uh, Tyranny, by Philippe Duplessis Mornay which had a major influence in the American colonies in 1776. Mornay maintains that the state has the obligation to swear allegiance to God and his law, and he based his argument on covenant theology. That is, the people and the king enter a covenant with God to maintain proper order, including, of course, proper order of worship. Each individual, as well as the king, is responsible for seeing that this covenant is fulfilled. 
the importance of the worship issue for Mornay's covenant theory becomes apparent when he tries to provide a historical example. Mornay uses the case of King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 32, indicating that the covenant between God and the Jews stipulated that the king and his entire people would worship God according to the prescription of his law as individuals and would act collectively to protect their worship. Mornay insists that the same principles apply to his own day, arguing that Christian rulers stand in the place of the Jewish kings and that it is their duty to ensure the fulfillment of God's law. This was the consensus of opinion among uh, the leaders of the Reformation in the 16th century. The biblical basis of the reformers' argument concerning the teaching of idolatry as a capital crime. Calvin and the other reformers based their belief regarding the teaching of idolatrous heresy as a capital crime on the abiding authority of two case laws in the Old Testament. Leviticus 24.16, which says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Calvin's commentary on this text is as follows. God would not have his holy name disrespectfully spoken of maliciously and falsely. And assuredly, it is unsupportably impious when the tongue of mortal man, which was created to celebrate the praises of God, is employed in insulting him. The kind of death is also appointed when he commands the offender to be stoned by the whole people so that all may learn from the sight that such a monster should be annihilated as contaminating the earth. God also would prove the zeal of his people by calling them all forth in defense of his glory and arming them for vengeance. Moreover, he did not subject to this punishment the Jews only who professed to be his worshipers but also strangers who were dwelling in the land in the exercise of their business, that they might more severely punish the crime in his own servants who were less excusable. And then there's Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 11. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him. Or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. 
So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. Now understand in these two texts before we go on that this is capital punishment administered by the civil magistrate after a court of law has found this person guilty of a capital crime. This is not vigilanteism. Now, what did John Calvin teach on these te texts? It should be remembered that Calvin and all the other reformers believe that the Bible is the inerrant, propositional, and verbal revelation from God in both Old Testament and New Testament. His comments on this text presuppose the divine authority of these verses and the divine justice they contain. Calvin writes that in the political supplements to the Ten Commandments, in his words, God commands the punishments to be inflicted if his religion shall have been violated. For political laws are not only enacted with reference to earthly affairs in order that men should maintain mutual equity with each other and should follow and observe what is right, but that they should exercise themselves in the veneration of God. No profane author ever existed who has not confessed that this is the principal part of a well-constituted state that all with one consent should reverence and worship God. But while God commends the care and study of religion to the judge and commands that the contempt of it should be publicly avenged, he at the same time provides against a common error that they should not rush into severity with rash and inconsiderate zeal. Calvin. Justly, therefore, does God recall his people to that doctrine which he has delivered to the end that whoever shall have contumaciously despised it should be punished. He now, in Deuteronomy 13, 5, subjoins the punishment of such as should creep in under the name of a prophet to draw away the people into rebellion. For he does not condemn to capital punishment those who may have spread false doctrine only on account of some particular or trifling error, but those who are the authors of apostasy, and so who pluck up religion by the roots. Observe again that the, re that the season of this severity would not be until a positive religion should be established. In other words, he's saying that these laws of capital punishment for heresy presuppose a Christian government, a Christian society, and he's making a distinction between teaching false doctrine and heresy. And you don't execute people for teaching false doctrine. Thus, while their severity is preposterous who defend superstitions with the sword, so also in a well-constituted polity, profane men are by no means to be tolerated by whom religion is subverted. Calvin, God commands the false prophets to be put to death, who pluck up the foundations of religion and are authors and leaders of rebellion. We read this earlier. God might indeed do without the assistance of the sword in defending religion, but such is not his will. And what wonder if God should command magistrates to be the avengers of his glory when he neither wills nor allows that thefts, fornications, and drunkenness should be exempt from punishment. Capital punishment shall be decreed against adulterers, but shall the despisers of God be permitted with impunity to adulterate the doctrines of salvation and to draw away wretched souls from the faith? But it is questioned whether the law pertains to the kingdom of Christ, Calvin says, which is spiritual and distinct from all earthly dominion, 
And there are some men not otherwise ill-disposed to whom it appears that our condition under the gospel is different from that of the ancient people under the law. Not only because the kingdom of Christ is not of this world, but because Christ was unwilling that the beginnings of his kingdom should be aided by the sword. But when human judges consecrate their work to the promotion of Christ's kingdom, I deny that on that account its nature is changed. For although it was Christ's will that his gospel should be proclaimed by his disciples in opposition to the power of the whole world, and he exposed them armed with the word alone like sheep among wolves, he did not impose on himself an eternal law that he should never bring kings under his subjection, nor tame their violence, nor change them from being cruel persecutors into the patrons and guardians of his church. Calvin. Christ indeed, as he is meek, would also, I confess, have us to be imitators of his gentleness. But that does not prevent pious magistrates from providing for the tranquility and safety of the church by their defense of godliness. Since to neglect this part of their duty would be the greatest perfidy and cruelty. And assuredly nothing can be more base than when we see wretched souls drawn away to eternal destruction by reason of the impunity conceded to impious, wicked, and perverse impostors to count the salvation of those souls for nothing. But if under this pretext the superstitious have dared to shed innocent blood, I reply that what God has once commanded must be brought to naught, uh, must not be brought to naught on account of any abuse or corruption of men. And then there's Martin Bucer, who we'll talk about too in a lecture. Martin Bucer, the older reformer, had a great influence on Calvin, the younger reformer. Calvin's mind was profoundly shaped by what he learned from Bucer while they worked together in Strasbourg, Germany, and before. Bucer wrote a book to assist King Edward VI of England in the reconstruction of England by the Word of God. This book is entitled De Regno Christi, or The Reign of Christ. The last chapter of that book is pertinent to our discussion. For in it we see Bootser making similar arguments regarding the teaching of idolatrous heresy as a capital crime, which Calvin and Beza would make. In it, Bootser defends the continuing applicability by the civil magistrate of the civil sanctions of the Old Testament's judicial or civil laws. By the way, I think it's the best article there is on capital punishment uh, written in the 1500s. There's nothing since to uh, improve upon, and it's all been often ridiculed but never refuted. And here is what Bootser says. So no man can describe an approach more equitable and wholesome to the commonwealth than that which God describes in his law. It is certainly the duty of all kings and princes who recognize that God has put them over his people that they follow most studiously his own method of punishing evildoers. For inasmuch as we have been freed from the teaching of Moses through Christ the Lord so that it is no longer necessary for us to observe the civil decrees of the law of Moses, namely in terms of the way and the circumstances in which they are described, Nevertheless, insofar as the substance and proper end of these commandments are concerned, and especially those which enjoin the discipline that is necessary for the whole commonwealth, whoever does not reckon that such commandments are to be conscientiously observed is certainly not attributing to God either supreme wisdom or righteous care for our salvation. Now, 
all of these reformers were very careful to distinguish the actual literal statement of these case laws, don't muzzle an ox while it's threshing, build a railing around your roof, from the uh, underlying moral principle they were meant to apply. And all of the reformers said, it, 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 it's not that we want to impose these literal case laws that uh, were typical of the culture of Moses in his day. It's the underlying moral principle that they illustrate that we want to apply and that civil governments still need to apply. Accordingly, says uh, Bootser, in every state sanctified to God, capital punishment must be ordered for all who have dared to injure religion either by introducing a false and impious doctrine about the worship of God, by calling people away from the true worship of God, for all who blaspheme the name of God in his solemn services, who violate the Sabbath, who rebelliously despise the authority of parents and live their own life wickedly, who are unwilling to submit to the sentence of a supreme, supreme tribunal, who have committed bloodshed, adultery, rape, kidnapping, who have given false testimony in a capital case. In these sanctions of God, we see that he judges that the death penalty should eliminate from his people whoever has openly defected from him or held him in contempt or persuades others to do the same, to the betrayal and vitiation of true religion. Those who have done injury to his name and who have obstinately detracted from the authority of God as it is administered through his ordinary agents, fathers of families or of country, or finally those who have attempted to take the life of a neighbor or of his wife or children. For those who are involved in such enormous crimes cannot but inflict great ruin on mankind. But the responsible cooperation of all good men by the responsible cooperation of all good men, these pests are therefore to be exterminated from human society no less than fierce wolves, lions, tigers, dragons, and crocodiles, which occasionally attack men in order to tear them in pieces and devour them. And so whoever decides that these misdeeds of impiety and wickedness are to be kept out or driven from the commonwealth of Christians by more mitigated punishment than death, necessarily makes himself wise and more loving than God as regards the salvation of men. And then there's the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The view of the 16th century reformers that the civil magistrate should obey and enforce the first table of the Decalogue is maturely set forth in the 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, uh, paragraph 3, and this is the original Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our uh, statement of doctrine. Listen. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So right off leaves this institutional separation and functional separation of church and state. Yet he, the civil magistrate, hath authority, and it's his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed. And then when you look at the scriptural footnote at the bottom of the page, it gives the same footnotes like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 13. All corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. For the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, 
to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. So there's a clear separation here of church and state, but not a separation of state from the Ten Commandments and from the case laws of the Old Testament. It should be noted that the biblical proof text, the Westminster Confession, has to support the statement that one function of civil government is to make sure, quote, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, include Leviticus 24, 16 and Deuteronomy 13. George Gillespie, a Scottish minister and leading participant in the Westminster Assembly, wrote a brilliant book entitled Wholesome Severity Reconciled with Christian Liberty, in which he defends the duty of the state not only to obey and enforce the first table of the Decalogue, but also to punish the teaching of idolatrous heresy with death. Also, two important books that defend the Westminster Confession of Faith against Erastianism are Robert Shaw, The Reformed Faith, and James Bannerman, The Church of Christ. Now, I'll turn over to the very end of our lecture conclusion, 335. Otto Scott said, Servetus holds a special status in anti-Calvinist legends. The death of this single individual out of all the tens of thousands of deaths in the terrible 16th century continues to arouse special indignation. But theologians know Servetus as a forerunner of Unitarianism, as one of the great theological disturbers of all times. Christians believe that heresy is an attempt to misdirect God's plan, and Servetus was more than a simple heretic. He was a scholar who, while pretending to be a Christian, attacked the foundations of Christianity. He was a dangerous enemy of the faith. Left unchecked, Servetus would have unhinged both the Reformation and Catholicism and left Europe bereft in the ashes of its faith centuries before that situation was actually realized. The confrontation between Calvin and Servetus, therefore, was one of the high moments of history heavy with not simply earthly but eternal significance. No Christian leader has ever been so often condemned by so many as John Calvin. And the usual grounds for this condemnation are his doctrine of predestination and the execution of Servetus. Yet, Otto Scott says, Servetus was only one of the tens of thousands who went to their deaths in Calvin's time by Roman Catholic kings, armies, and prelates. And none of their judges ever received the denunciations heaped upon Calvin, who had no civil authority and was not a judge in Geneva. Men of the 20th century who have witnessed, without moving a finger, the arbitrary murder of tens of millions in wars and abortions have no basis upon which to stand and judge non-Calvin. One last point should be made. Before he died... Servetus was heard to cry out to Jesus for mercy. It was no doubt the genuine cry of an utterly broken man turning to a merciful God. More specifically, it is told that while Servetus throughout his life would refer to Jesus as the son of the eternal God, but never as the eternal son of God, placing him on par with God as God, in the flames he was heard to cry, O eternal Son of God, have mercy on me. Why would a professed Christian speak of Calvin's and the Reformer's view 
that the teaching of idolatrous heresy is a capital crime as deplorable. Why do today's Christians condemn them so severely for their sincerely held view, which they, as godly men, claim they receive from the teaching of the Bible as the Word of God? The answer is a painful one. Since the Protestant Reformation, Western culture has come to a place, come to place a higher value on pretended human sovereignty and human rights than on the sanctity of revealed truth, the majesty of God, the purity of worship, and the holiness of God's name. Western culture has become thoroughly humanistic. It believes that man has the ability to determine right and wrong for himself without any reference to God in his biblical revelation. It has changed lawgivers from God to man, and with that revolutionary change, it now calls good what God calls evil, and evil what God calls good.